Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer, and I love all things tech. And in our last episode, I covered some of the gadgets and weapons ARPA, now DARPA, was working on in connection with the rise of communist insurgents in Southeast Asia and the events leading up to what would become the Vietnam War. But one area I did not spend much time on was the psychological side of their research. ARPA actually conducted extensive research to learn about the psychology of the people of Vietnam in a couple of different big projects. So these were questions like, what would convince someone to side with the Viet Cong, for example, as opposed to uh, being loyal to President Diem, at that time. What motivated them? A pair of specialists, both of whom were knowledgeable of Vietnam's language, culture, and history, conducted research around an initiative the U.S. was backing called the Strategic Hamlet Program. This had nothing to do with Shakespeare, Hamlet in the sense of village. Uh, In this case, this program would relocate entire villages of Vietnamese people to newly constructed hamlets some distance away. Uh, The people were supposed to do a lot of the construction themselves. They were supposed to get some materials and compensation from the Vietnamese government. Uh, A lot of this was meant to be built on their efforts and their efforts alone. The goal was to keep the Viet Cong out. The researchers found that the efforts were having a negative impact on the Vietnamese and were likely to backfire in the long run for lots of different reasons. One was that they resented having to move from their homes where they had a deep connection. Another was that the promised compensation and support from the Vietnamese government didn't seem to be coming. And so they were being essentially relocated out of their homes and then just sort of thrown into the wild. So the two consultants came back to the United States and said, this is not working. But that view was not a popular one. That was not what people wanted to hear. And they were largely ignored. Subsequent research conducted by people who did not have that same background in Vietnamese culture and language would have a more optimistic outlook, which people back in the United States, and by people I mean super secret classified meetings, uh, these officials thought that was great because it was what they wanted to hear. Now, as it turned out, the original reports were way more realistic. The ones that said the Vietnamese people are unhappy and this is making the region more unstable. And this, my friends, is a reminder that sometimes our research pulls up stuff we would rather not consider. But it's irresponsible to ignore that information just because it is inconvenient or goes against what we first thought. We can't conduct research just to confirm our own biases. At least we can't do that and expect to arrive at results that reflect the truth. Now, back in the States, another big development was about to get rolling. In 1962, J.C.R. Licklider would become the first director of ARPA's Information Processing Techniques Office, or IPTO. This office alone could justify many different episodes of Tech Stuff. I could do a month's worth of episodes about the work out of the IPTO. And I have done episodes about some of the projects that spawned out of the IPTO, like ARPANET, for example. That was born out of IPTO, and it would set the groundwork for the internet. So Joseph Carl Romnet Licklider, or simply Lick to his friends, was born in 1915. He graduated from college in 1937. 
He had degrees in psychology, in mathematics, and in physics. He earned a master's degree in psychology in 1938, so one year after he graduated uh, undergrad school. He earned a PhD in psychoacoustics in 1942, and then he became a professor at Harvard for several years. After a while, he decided to go and work at MIT, and he began to get really interested in the Lincoln Laboratory. Engineers there were hard at work on an IBM computer system that was the heart of a system called the Semi-Automatic Ground Environment, or SAGE, which was an early multitasking computer. It was also part of the North American Air Defense Command, or NORAD, and it could control radar systems and respond to the data they gathered. So this computer could analyze information picked up by a radar system and then send commands to the U.S. Uh, defensive missile system in response. So it was a true multitasking computer, a very early example of that. The SAGE system gave Licklider ideas about the future of computing, and he wrote a paper titled Man-Computer Symbiosis. This is where he envisioned a future where humans would work with machines to complete tasks, and those machines would help make today's tasks easier to complete and would make possible future tasks that we could not tackle today because we would have to have machines in order to achieve those tasks. He also wrote a book titled Libraries of the Future, in which he predicted that people in the future would be able to access a library's resources through a single database. That would become one of many components that we think of when we think of the internet, the idea that we have access to what appears to be the grand sum total of all of humankind's wisdom and knowledge, although we know that's not really true. There's a lot of secret stuff that, while it may be on the internet, is locked away from your prying eyes. Like projects at DARPA, which probably aren't on the internet at all because that would be an incredible security risk. Anyway, Licklider thought that eventually people might even have their own computer consoles in their homes, which was an incredibly revolutionary idea back in 1960. We take it for granted today, but in 1960, computers were big things that were limited to some research facilities, some universities, a few businesses had them, uh, some government agencies had them, but that was it. We were still more than a decade away from the earliest personal computers. His work would get the attention of Harold Brown. Harold Brown had taken over for Herbert York. You might remember Herbert York was the original chief scientist of ARPA, and uh, uh, he had stepped down when President Kennedy had been elected. And now Harold Brown had occupied York's old position. So Brown sees the work of Licklider, and he decides to reach out and see if Licklider would like to work with the agency. And it was Lick who envisioned a network of computers working with each other. Now, at that time, computers were these big centralized machines, and most of them essentially had one terminal for access. So you were limited by... That one terminal, if someone else was doing work, you just couldn't do anything with that computer. And because computers were so large and so expensive and so difficult to run, you weren't likely to have a second one available for you to work on. So computer time was incredibly precious. There are stories about people who were going to computer science classes who were trying to find different ways to monopolize as much computer time as possible because, again, only one person could work on the machine at a time. Licklider envisioned a different future. In that future, people would sit down at one of several terminals 
that would all connect to a single machine. And so all these different terminals would run tasks on a central computer. Uh, The terminals themselves would be dumb terminals, not personal computers. So it was almost like you had your own computer. Like imagine you have a screen and a keyboard in front of you. But in reality, those would just be connected to this centralized computer that would be shared by all the people around you. The computer would rapidly switch between running processes connected from one terminal and then switch over to a different set of processes to the next terminal and the next and the next. It would do this very, very quickly. So ideally, the people on these various terminals would feel like they were getting an uninterrupted experience, that it wasn't that they had to wait every so often for the computer to respond to them because it's going at a much faster pace than we humans tend to do, but still doing this one at a time. This approach would be called time-sharing. So Lick imagined a time-sharing computer network back in 1962. That idea would become the seed that would later grow into ARPANET. And again, that laid the groundwork for the internet. Something else happened in 1962 that was super-duper scary. And that would be the Cuban Missile Crisis. So here's some history. Uh, There's going to be a lot of history and a lot of politics in this episode. Not my personal political views, but rather the way that history and politics and technology all are wrapped up together in this, the the early era of ARPA and, and DARPA, because it really shaped what the agency was doing and therefore shaped the technology that it was uh, researching. So you've got the Cuban Missile Crisis. Essentially what was happening was the Soviet Union had moved nuclear-armed missiles into Cuba. And that's just 90 miles away off the coast of Florida in the United States. So this seemed to pose a direct imminent threat to the U.S. This terrifying idea that the Soviet Union could launch a nuclear attack 90 miles away from the U.S. And with that sort of proximity, it wouldn't give the U.S. very much time to be able to respond. And it was a terrifying thought that the Soviet Union now had an incredible advantage over the U.S. and could potentially launch a nuclear strike. President Kennedy ordered a military blockade around Cuba and demanded that the Soviets remove the missiles. The Soviets did not comply initially, and that led to this Cuban Missile Crisis. During this crisis, four nuclear missiles were fired and detonated. Now, these were not fired at a target on land. It was not fired against a country or a city. These were fired into space. Two of them were fired by the United States. Two of them were fired by the Soviet Union. In all cases, the countries were testing the Christophilos effect that I talked about in the previous episode. This was an effort to see if by detonating nuclear warheads in the lower reaches of space, if you could create a high-speed electron-style force field effect, sort of a sustained electromagnetic pulse that would fry any electronic system that attempted to pass through it. So the idea that if another ICBM were to go up to that level and try to descend at, say, the United States, this field would fry the firing mechanism aboard the ICBM and it wouldn't detonate. That was the idea. The U.S. detonated a nuclear weapon codenamed Checkmate on October 20th and one codenamed Bluegill Triple Prime on October 26th, both 1962, by the way, 
The Soviet Union followed suit on October 22nd and October 28th. Meanwhile, also on October 22nd, 1962, President Kennedy would raise the defense readiness conditions to DEFCON 2, which was the highest level that the United States ever got to and didn't repeat it again until 1991, which was the start of the Persian Gulf War. So quick word about DEFCON. What does that actually mean? You probably heard the term, but it stands for the Defense Readiness Condition. It's an alert state. It's meant to denote the general level of defense readiness, or in other words, the state of alert that the nation is in, specifically the armed forces, based on current world conditions. Different military branches can have different DEFCON levels. These are not levels that are generally broadcast to the general population. This is meant for military matters. And it's set by the president and the U.S. Secretary of Defense and the Joint Chiefs of Staff, typically. There are five levels. Level five is the lowest state of readiness. It means that everything's fine or as fine as it ever is. And therefore, you don't need to be ready to rush out at a moment's notice. Uh, so that's DEFCON 5. It just means normal readiness. DEFCON 4 means you step up intelligence efforts to get more information about the situation and you increase security measures to prevent your own data from getting leaked to potential adversaries. So in this case, it just means everything's probably still fine, but keep your eyes and ears open. DEFCON 3 means getting forces ready for possible deployment, including ordering the Air Force to be prepared to mobilize within 15 minutes. So essentially saying, be on the alert. If we give you the order, within 15 minutes of getting that order, you should be up in the air. So again, it doesn't mean get in the air, it just means get ready just in case. DEFCON 2 means all armed force branches have to be prepared to deploy and engage in less than six hours, and that nuclear war is a possibility. DEFCON 1 means nuclear war is imminent. So going to DEFCON 2 was a really big deal, and you pair that with the fact that four nuclear weapons were launched and detonated while the country was at DEFCON 2. Well, three of them anyway, while the country was at DEFCON 2. That's sobering, because if anything had gone wrong or if anyone had made a different interpretation, it could have led to an all-out nuclear war. That's how close the world was to the brink of nuclear war back in 1962. Licklider would end up advocating that ARPA push for projects that would drastically overhaul the command and control systems the United States relied upon, incorporating computers into that system and allow for the extensive use of computers in all sorts of applications that would be useful not just to the military. I mean, that was ARPA's main purpose, but Licklider saw applications beyond that. Uh, he said that it would be useful for scientists, it would be useful for business, and ultimately, if it lasted long enough, it would be useful for everybody. Everyone would be able to take advantage of it in the long run. So he, so he wrote a memo. He proposed what he called the Intergalactic Computer Network. This would be a network of networks that would allow computers to send information back and forth freely with each other. And this was a big deal because computer systems back then, if they were built by different companies, they relied on different computer languages. They could not communicate directly with one another. If you were to put a wire, like a cable, between computer A and computer B, and they were built by different companies... It was like they were speaking different languages. They would not be able to send information meaningfully back and forth to each other. 
And so Licklider said, we need to create a network that would facilitate communication between these two so that the, the language spoken by one could get translated into a standard language, and then it could be translated back into language number two for the second computer. So he was envisioning this uh, network that would have these communication standards built into the network itself. And again, that would become a, a primary component of ARPANET and also the internet. So fascinating stuff. I've got a lot more to say about ARPA, and in particular ARPA and its involvement in the uh, events in Vietnam. But first, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. In 1962, ARPA and the U.S. Air Force provided funding for the development of a computer framework that was the brainchild of another computer pioneer. This pioneer was Douglas Engelbart, who would play a part in developing many computer technologies that we use today, he and his team. So this would be stuff like graphical user interfaces or GUIs, you know, like Windows or the Mac operating system. Also, the good old computer mouse was part of his team's work. The very first computer mouse, by the way, was shown off in 1964. It was carved out of wood and it had one button on it. The framework that he and his team designed was called the Online System. Its initials were NLS. They had capital N for on. So Online System, NLS. It would take years for it to actually finish. It started in 1962, but in 1968, Engelbart would show off a demonstration of this system, and it had lots of stuff that we take for granted today, like the aforementioned computer mouse. Engelbart would show off other innovations as well, like hypertext links that would provide a way to link different points of data together in meaningful ways. Uh, And he showed off different ways to sort and organize data, as well as to present data in different ways, including in Windows, so that you could have many different windows open at once. The 1968 presentation would later become known as the mother of all demos. And some of that technology would later find its way over to the Xerox PARC Center. That's their R&D operations over at Xerox. And a guy named Steve Jobs, who got to visit Xerox in the 1970s, would take those ideas and incorporate them in a new computer called Lisa, and shortly after that, into a different new computer called the Macintosh. But all of that stuff originally started off as an ARPA-funded project at the Stanford Research Institute. So pretty phenomenal. Think about that, that the computer mouse and the graphical user interface, all of that had been around really since 1968, and it wasn't until the 80s that we started seeing it incorporated into personal computers. In addition to the early ideas that would evolve into the internet, Licklider was also at work in a totally different department with a very, very different focus, It was called the Behavioral Sciences Program. This played into Licklider's love of psychology. So the goal of it was to, quote, build a bridge from psychology into the other social sciences, end quote, largely through the use of computer systems. And part of that meant using computers to attempt to model human behavior. Now, on the surface, the computer systems that would be used in this project were pushed as a way to help teach and train people, essentially saying, we're going to use computers to help people learn new skills. And it's an educational tool. But underneath this cover purpose for the program, the computers were gathering data 
about human behavior that might potentially be exploited for defense purposes. So in a way, this was a two-way street on education, right? The people using the computers were learning about various topics and skills, and meanwhile the computers were gathering data about the people themselves. It was a very early example of what we see in common use today. Companies like Facebook and Google use these same techniques to learn about user behaviors. So the way we use Facebook and Google teaches Facebook and Google more about us. And then those companies, Facebook and Google, can exploit what they've learned in order to make more money. And you could argue that this approach traces its origins back to ARPA and Licklider. The Licklider group felt that if you could get enough information about people and how they behave, then you could build predictive models and guess at how people will behave in various hypothetical situations. And a step beyond that, if you can predict how people will behave given a specific set of circumstances, you can then control people by manifesting those circumstances. If you know people are going to behave a a very specific way in response to event A, then you can orchestrate event A to happen to make people behave that way, assuming that your models are correct, obviously. People are notoriously difficult to predict in variable situations. But this was not just a thought experiment. This wasn't just people sitting around saying, I bet if we could do this, then this would happen. In 1962, ARPA would open up a second combat development test center. The first was in Vietnam. The second one was in Thailand. Uh, The plan was eventually to open up these centers around the world, and it would be an effort for the United States to be able to do outreach and support local local events, like largely local military operations, without the United States becoming directly involved. So that way, the U.S. could support efforts that it felt were in the best interests Uh, interests of the American public and the national security and things of that nature without it looking like the United States has to actually go to war. It's kind of a a shady (laughs) black ops operation in many ways. Anyway, at that center in uh, Thailand, Licklider's group would initiate a project called Anthropometric Survey of the Royal Thai Armed Forces. Now, ARPA had pitched this program to the Thai government with a cover, And the cover was that this was an effort to gather information about body sizes of your typical Thai soldiers. And this would help the Thai government design equipment and clothing that would best fit their fighting force. So when you think about it, if you're having to create a bunch of uniforms for an army, knowing what the average size is of your average soldier means you can build out, you can can make efficient the system, right? You can maximize the number of... uh, uniforms that fit a certain body type and save on costs that way. But in addition to measuring the various soldiers to provide the data that this project was said to gather to the Thai government, the team was also asking several questions of each soldier, including really personal information, like philosophical ideas, um, you know, reasons why people join the army, this sort of stuff. This data was sent back to the United States for processing at the U.S. Army Natick Laboratories in Massachusetts. This information was transferred to punch cards, because that's what we were using in those days for data storage. 
And this data was stored in the event that Thailand might experience the same sort of insurgency issues that other areas in Southeast Asia were going through. ARPA would be able to gather information about these soldiers. They'd be able to track those soldiers. And if soldiers were known to defect, then they could go back to these records and look at the answers that the soldiers gave and see if there's any way of connecting the various pieces And moreover, predicting future behaviors from other soldiers who might have given similar answers back at that time. It might be able to prevent other defection. So it was interesting, and ARPA was really pushing for this predictive model approach, although there was a lot of disagreement about how reliable it would be. People were thinking that the social sciences were much more fuzzy than your, your other sciences like chemistry and physics and nuclear science. One person who worked closely with Licklider was Dr. Ithiel de Sola Poole, who was a social scientist, and he had studied propaganda and the effects of communications technologies on politics and social structures. He would use one of my favorite words to describe our relationship with technology, and that would be convergence. He also was very much interested in how different forms of media can affect us and to what degree they can affect us. Uh, So that was another element of DARPA that didn't directly go into the idea of creating the next high-tech weapon, but still has to do with technology and still is really fascinating to me. Also, it's something that we still see playing out today. We still see people really studying how different forms of communication affect us and how they can leverage that to get messages across, whether it's in uh, advertising, which we see all the time, or just trying to promote one set of ideas over another. In 1963, after the Vietnamese president, Diem, uh, had initiated martial law in an attempt to assert more control and to suppress any movement he considered to be a threat to his power, uh, namely practicing Buddhists, he was uh, a Catholic and was suppressing Buddhist practices as much as he could, events unfolded that would end up capitulating into what we call the Vietnam War. And it really started happening in earnest in 1963. The The pieces were already there by 1963, but these events really started pushing things forward. The efforts of ARPA and its, uh, its various centers that were meant to support uh, U.S. interests in Southeast Asia It was all trying to avoid getting directly involved in a war. But it proved to be too little to prevent chaos. Several Vietnamese military officers planned a coup against the president, President Diem, and his brother. And they ended up receiving support from America, notably the CIA, in order to do this. And this eventually led to the capture and then assassination of the president and his brother, which in turn would lead to more instability in the region. And then ultimately, you could argue this is what led to the escalation of what we call the Vietnam War. 20 days after that assassination, Lee Harvey Oswald would shoot President Kennedy. And we had an assassination of our own here in the United States. Vice President Lyndon B. Johnson would assume the position of president. Now, as the situation in Vietnam was getting worse, back in the States, a different ARPA project was coming online. This was the Arecibo Observatory in Puerto Rico. And originally conceived back in the late 1950s, 
this observatory had a large-scale ionospheric radar probe. For many decades, it would be the home of the world's largest radar dish until China completed the FAST dish telescope in 2016. So this observatory in Puerto Rico could take measurements of the ionosphere and its interactions with electromagnetic fluctuations, such as those from communication signals or, you know, maybe an EMP burst. It was originally included as part of the overall Defender program out of ARPA. That was the largest project in ARPA, the Ballistic Missile Defense Program. The observatory had been used for numerous scientific projects, still has, still is, in fact, uh, it, it even helped NASA pick the lunar landing sites for the Apollo missions. It's part of the National Astronomy and Ionosphere Center, which is operated by a cooperative agreement between the university's Space Research Association, the Universidad Metropolitana, and SRI International. Also in 1963, the Vila Project... Again, the Vila project was the second largest project out of ARPA behind Defender. This was the one that was meant to detect nuclear detonations through various sensors. This project advanced a bit in 1963. Uh, a pair of satellites were launched from the United States just a few days after a new limited nuclear test ban treaty was signed between the U.S., the U.K., and the Soviet Union. These satellites had special Vila sensors aboard. Those sensors would be on the lookout for optical and electromagnetic signatures that would indicate a nuclear explosion in the atmosphere. So in other words, this was part of the equipment the U.S. would depend upon to make sure everyone was playing by the established rules of the ban treaty. They would look for any evidence that someone was actually conducting tests when they weren't supposed to be. The Vila and Defender projects both would continue to develop technologies that supported their respective project goals. So this was not the end of either project. I've got more to say, but let's take a quick break to thank our sponsors. In 1964, the IPTO participated in the Project on Mathematics and Computation, or Project MAC, M-A-C. This was essentially a research project to develop a functional time-sharing system from a single computer that could be accessed from various locations. MIT computer scientist Robert Fano initially directed the project. Back in Vietnam, ARPA was funding what would turn into a controversial program conducted by the RAND Corporation. This was called the Viet Cong Motivation and Morale Program. So essentially, the goal of this program was to get an understanding of what made the Viet Cong soldiers tick. What were their reasons for aligning with the communists? What kept them going? What were they... Motivated by, were they demotivated by the technological weapons that were being brought to bear against them? Big questions like that. At this point, the man who had started the counterinsurgency projects at ARPA, the guy named William Godel, I talked about him in the last episode, he was suspected of having embezzled money from ARPA funds for his personal use, and he would ultimately be tried and convicted for the embezzlement of about $17,000, actually a little less than $17,000. Leon Gore, a RAND analyst who headed up the morale project, concluded that the Viet Cong were demoralized and they would soon give up. That was what he got. That's the conclusion he came to after doing some of this work. A lot of other people disagreed with 
this conclusion, but Gore's work was influential on in how the U.S. would form policy around Vietnam, which, spoiler alert, was not the most successful policy. He would eventually be relieved of his duties in the Motivation and Morale Project when it became clear that the Viet Cong were not as demoralized as he had let people think. Congress had some harsh words for ARPA, including questioning why work that normally would be handled by military intelligence was being contracted out at great expense to a private company like the Rand Corporation. ARPA also spent a great deal of money researching ways to destroy large areas of jungle to remove that particular advantage held by the Viet Cong. This was an extension of the work that they had already done in defoliation as part of Project Agile. They were really stepping this up. They were trying to figure out, well, we really need to get rid of that because it is proving to be uh, a big issue, a big barrier to success in Vietnam. The department uh, had already funded the, the production of these various rainbow agents. They then turned to the scientific advisory for profit group, the Jasons. Uh, it's also just Jason is what it's called, but typically the scientists attached to it are referred to as Jasons. It's named after Jason and the Argonauts. And asked them, can you come up with a way to get rid of large sections of jungles? See, jungles are wet and... You know, it's hard to get rid of them through means like fire. That was really the the main push, though, was can you figure out a way to have a firestorm take out a large section of jungle? Despite numerous tests, both in the wet season and the dry season, using various herbicides, fuels, and lots of fire, ARPA was unable to develop any sort of technique that proved effective. They even did a test run where they dropped flammable oil all over a section of jungle multiple times, and then they ignited the section with a phosphorus rocket, but they found that the oil would just burn out and the jungle would remain more or less intact because it was just, it was just too wet. This project had the ironic name Project Emote, which I don't know what that's all about. Anyway... In an earlier episode when I was talking about Jason, uh, I mentioned that they were – there was a, it was an organization of some of the most decorated and respected scientists in the United States. ARPA was their one and only client in the 1960s. as the only group that Jason would work with. One of the members of this group was a guy named Gordon MacDonald who was a brilliant geophysicist. In the early 1960s, MacDonald became fascinated by climate science, and he headed up the Panel on Weather and Climate Modification at the National Academy of Sciences in 1963. And as one of the Jasons and as a consultant for ARPA, he advocated for research in the field of weather modification in large-scale tests and to take a leading role in not just developing technology that might be able to influence or perhaps even control the weather— but also to shape the legal framework for such technology, particularly once it would inevitably make its way out of the military sector and into the private sector. Um, McDonald, by the way, is also one of the scientists who led the research uh, on climate change. He was an early voice advocating for big, big changes in the way we uh, deal with energy in order to reduce the amount of climate change that was going to happen. One of the projects that he would work on at ARPA 
would become infamous. And it had many different names and code names for its various parts and pieces, including stuff like uh, the anti-infiltration barrier. That's what ARPA called it. But there was also the code names of uh, Project Practice 9. Uh, there was Die Maker or Die Marker, rather. There was Illinois City. There was Igloo White, Muscle Shoals. But a lot of the press would refer to it in the future as McNamara's Electronic Fence or Electric Fence. And it was named after the Secretary of Defense McNamara who had approved it. The goal was to create a means to shut down the supply line that was represented by the Ho Chi Minh Trail. This is a trail that the Viet Cong were using uh, and the North Vietnamese were using to bring soldiers and supplies down from North Vietnam through Cambodia and Laos to, to South Vietnam. The Jasons had the task of coming up with a way to shut down that supply route. Uh, at one point, they were even asked to consider the possibility of using a tactical nuclear weapon to perhaps collapse one of the, uh, the pathways along the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Ultimately, they said, we should not do that because, one, it would not be very efficient, two, it'd be very difficult, and three, the Viet Cong, because they were so highly motivated, despite that earlier report saying they were demoralized, they would rapidly find alternative pathways. And so it, even if you were to shut it down temporarily, it would only be temporarily. So the American public heard about efforts to build a physical fence that was the cover story for this particular covert operation. And in fact, the United States forces were helping to build fences in Vietnam to prevent traffic along the Ho Chi Minh Trail. But what the Jasons were working on was a bit different. It was a string of sensors that included multiple sensing technologies, not just a single sensor, but actually a, a collection of sensors. And it included stuff like seismic sensors, biometric sensors, chemical sensors. So the idea was that any troops or vehicles moving along the Ho Chi Minh Trail would trigger these sensors. The sensors would pick up movement or detect chemical signatures or have acoustic signatures, you know, sound or whatever, because there'd be all these different sensors attached to this, this uh, electric fence that was virtual, essentially. It was, it was a series of sensors that would embed into the ground of the jungle. It wouldn't be a physical fence you would pass through uh, traditionally. The sensors would pick up this information and relay it to surveillance aircraft, which in turn could send that data to a collection of computers inside a special infiltration surveillance center, perhaps located in Thailand. And analysts would know precisely where Viet Cong soldiers were in the area, even if they were on something like a bicycle or even a cart being pulled by oxen. And they could relay that information to military units. Uh, they could also include some pretty awful technologies and weapons that would be part of this, like mines, landmines. Other weapons could also be employed, such as the so-called sad-eye cluster bombs. These bombs, each of these little clusters was the size of a, a tennis ball, and it would fragment into shards of deadly metal upon detonation. And they designed a bomb that was capable of carrying 665 of these sad-eye clusters, and if you were to detonate that bomb, it would create a kill radius of about 800 feet, or about 244 meters. That's radius, not diameter. The proposal for this electric fence met with stiff opposition from military officials. Many of them felt that it was an impractical method, 
It was going to rely upon technology that wasn't all in existence yet. Like some of the sensors we did have at that point, but the proposal was calling for the development of sensors that we didn't have. So these military officials were saying, you're putting money aside for something that we don't even know we can do yet. And perhaps more importantly, they were worried that this money that would be set aside for this project could have otherwise gone to the various military branches and their efforts. But McNamara overruled all those objections. It would become the most expensive high-tech project of the Vietnam War. There was almost $2 billion dedicated to it in total from beginning to end. Now, ultimately, it had at best limited success. It was never fully deployed, so that was a problem. Conditions of Vietnam would end up changing dramatically, especially after the so-called Tet Offensive. And the sensors were not reliable in Vietnam's hot and humid weather. Batteries would drain too quickly. Sensors would go dead earlier than expected. Uh, it was also really hard to get an accurate placement of sensors. The sensors were being deployed from aircraft and dropped directly onto the jungle floor, in some cases without a parachute. They acted almost like a spear and went straight down and would embed into the ground. So it was kind of hard to get them placed just right. Plus, it was very dangerous. There were flight crews that were constantly under fire while trying to deploy these sensors. So it was a very tough thing to do, and it never quite got out to the level that the Jason group had really envisioned. And it didn't really pan out for Vietnam, but it did prove to be a powerful proof of concept for unmanned sensors and system of systems in which a large amount of data could be fed into an analysis system for real-time combat conditions and decisions. And essentially, a lot of military officials after the fact said, yeah, it didn't work in Vietnam because it had never been done before. It didn't, it wasn't fully baked, but it was a proof of concept that would become invaluable in future conflicts. Back at home, ARPA provided funding to the Stanford Research Institute in, in uh, the efforts to develop a robot with the ability to navigate its way through a set of rooms, which was a truly revolutionary achievement back in the mid-1960s. ARPA would agree to the proposal that Stanford gave to them, and so work began on what would eventually be known as Shaky the Robot. It's called Shaky because the robot would shake as it moved. This project took several years. The actual robot wasn't ready for a demonstration until the early 1970s, but it began in the mid-1960s. ARPA's research and work during the Vietnam conflict, stuff that would impact the Vietnam conflict, continued throughout the entire history of our involvement in the Vietnam War. And it would continue to harm the reputation of the agency as well in many ways. By the time the United States would withdraw from the Vietnam War... ARPA would end up being separated from the Pentagon and set up in new offices and also have a much lower budget than it had before. In our next episode, I will tell, talk a little bit more about some of the final projects that ARPA did uh, in connection to the Vietnam War. I'll also talk about some of the crazy psychological projects that ARPA got involved with, as well as some of the other cool technological projects that the uh, agency got involved with. Now, because this history is so dense and because it involves so many different topics and technologies, uh, many of which we are enjoying the benefits of today, I am probably going to break this up so that our next episode will be the last one in this DARPA arc. And then I'll take a break from DARPA and we'll talk about some other technologies. 
And then perhaps a few more weeks from now, I'll come back and we'll continue the story of DARPA because I don't want tech stuff to become DARPA stuff. But I do think that the full story of DARPA is fascinating and we will have to come back to it. So next episode, we'll probably wrap up the 1960s since I've done four episodes and I haven't been able to get through a decade yet. Uh, And then we'll see where we are after that and continue it further into the future. If you guys have suggestions for topics I should tackle in future episodes of Tech Stuff, it doesn't have to be a multi-episode arc. It could be about a very specific tech. Go to techstuffpodcast.com. That's our website. You can find all the ways to contact me there and let me know what you think. Make sure you go to tpublic.com slash techstuff to check out our merchandise. Remember, during the holiday season, TeePublic has all sorts of crazy sales, so be sure to check the store. You never know what kind of amazing deal you're going to get. And next thing you know, you got all your holiday shopping done just by uh, getting everybody a Tech Stuff t-shirt. You know, you know they want one. Don't forget that Tech Stuff has been nominated for an iHeartRadio Podcast Award. So make sure you vote for us either on social media. You can tweet out the uh, the the nominee category, which is science and technology. Uh, and also remember that you're voting for Tech Stuff. And use the hashtag iHeartPodcastAwards. Or you can go to iHeartPodcastAwards.com and you can vote there up to five times a day. We really appreciate it. And I will talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 